Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast, a podcast for Christians spooked by the growing hostility in the culture today. We will tackle a range of topics from current events, persecution, missions, and what it means to be the church. You will gain valuable insights from those experienced working with persecuted Christians around the world, insights we all need to chew on in these strange days. Together, may we help the church stand. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Christian Emergency Podcast. I'm Andy Coleman, your host. And today we have a very insightful episode for you. I think you're going to find it very rewarding and fruitful as you can apply it to your own life. If you've been listening to this podcast for any period of time, you know that we are trying to prepare Christians for persecution and pressures that are building while also assisting Christians that are overseas that are already very familiar with higher persecution climates. And our guest today is going to help us process a little bit of this particularly in the West, particularly in America, but I believe that there's going to be pieces of this that we can put together for a more global, holistic view of the Christian experience. Our guest this week is Aaron Wren. Aaron Wren is an opinion-leading urban analyst, a consultant, a speaker, a writer, a former senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He wears many hats. Much of his work has focused on urban and economic policy, but he's also a very thoughtful cultural Christian analyst and commentator. If you listen to him, he has a podcast. He has very thoughtful analysis on the the Christian experience and what's going on in society. And we're going to be discussing today an article that he wrote called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. This was published in the February 2022 edition of First Things. Obviously, a person who has been around many blocks has a lot to offer. We're very delighted to have Aaron join us. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Would you just start out by providing our listeners an overview of your article? You just read my biography, and so people know that I come from a consulting background. And what consultants do is help our clients understand the world and make decisions within it. And so we produce lots of frameworks that help people make sense of the world around them. We're much less about directly telling people, do this, do that. And this article is much like a consulting white paper uh, in that regard, although hopefully much more readable. I essentially provide a framework and way to understand and make sense of what's going on in the world. Everyone understands that there's something of a chill wind blowing in America towards the Christian faith, towards the church. We sense that something has changed, but it's hard to really articulate or make sense of it sometimes. And so this piece is really targeted at that. And what I do is essentially roll back the clock to around 1950. 1950s were the highest decade ever of church attendance in America, when about half of all adults in the country attended weekly. Then Christianity started to go into a decline. Attendance went into decline. We had the cultural upheavals of the 1960s, which started to reject some of traditional Christian teaching. The sexual revolution in the 70s continued that as well. We had rulings like Roe versus Wade, et cetera. So Christianity went into essentially a sense of decline in America, decline both in terms of practice and decline in terms of its status within the culture, within society. And I divide that period of time from the 60s through to today into three distinct phases or worlds that I call the positive world, 
the neutral world and the negative world. And these names refer to the way secular society and culture, particularly at the elite levels, the official levels, if you want to call it that, how they viewed Christianity. In the positive world, which I state was prior to 1994, Christianity, although in decline, was still seen largely as a social positive. To be known as a good church-going man makes people want to hire you. It makes you seem like an upstanding member of society. Christian moral norms are still normative in society, and if you violate them, such as a politician having an affair, you're in big trouble. But around 1994 and extending through to 2014, we entered what I call the neutral world, in which Christianity is no longer viewed positively, but it's not really viewed negatively either. It is essentially seen as a neutral attribute, like a hobby or affectation that one can have in a pluralistic public square. So we might meet on the street, and I'd say, I'm a Christian. And you would say, that's great. I'm a vegan. Let's talk. Let's, uh, let's all collaborate in this multicultural society. But then around 2014, we reached a second tipping point in where we entered the negative world. And in the negative world, which is truly an unprecedented time in America, Christianity is now viewed negatively. To be known as a Christian actually hurts you in the elite domains of society at the cultural center. Christian moral norms are expressly repudiated by society, and in fact, are now seen as a threat to the new public moral order. And so for the first time in the 400-year history of the United States, we are now in a situation where Christianity is essentially on the outs, and it is viewed negatively by the culture at large. Just to, to back up where you prefaced all that, these three different eras or stages that have been unwinding in the American cultural landscape, I think that's going to be helpful for many people to, to think through. But I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a pastor in the Bible Belt of the United States a year ago, and they were baffled. And they're like, I don't understand this. When I was a young pastor, it meant something to be, you know, going downtown and people would see you and there was a respectful tone and a, and a cheerfulness. And, and then that kind of became more subdued. And now I'm not sure that this is really well received in the community, even in a part of the country that's still fairly, it has a, an element of cultural Christianity that's still pronounced. So even they were sensing this, and I think what you're describing is going to be very helpful to them as a framework to process that and chart out their own experience and to make sense of it to some extent. This negative world since 2014 in, in the United States, what a lot of Christians have been experiencing, and some Christians have experienced, no doubt, before that. In your article, you describe how these periods are impressionistic. You can, you can play with the dates a little bit. You could hedge them a couple years here, a couple years there. But by and large, these are the patterns that you have observed if you were a Christian in academia, if you were at a, an elite institution before 2014, no doubt you were experiencing some of that hostility prior to this. But by and large, I think that your analysis is accurate. You also started out your article by describing that evangelicalism itself is divided. How so? What did you mean by that? I analyzed the way that evangelicals responded to these three different worlds in the article as well. So that was a second piece of it. And in the positive world, I identified two predominant ministry strategies that characterized that world. One is what I called the culture war strategy, which I think we're all familiar with. 
the Jerry Falwell, the Pat Robertson, the culture war people saw that the status of Christianity was eroding. They watched what was happening with the sexual revolution and abortion, and they said, we're going to fight back. We're going to take back the country. The very name of the leading organization of the culture war era, Moral Majority, tells you that it was a positive world. It may not have been true that Christianity was a moral majority then, but it was at least plausible to make that claim, just as Nixon did with his silent majority. A second stream was the seeker-sensitive movement, what we now know is mostly the uh, non-denominational suburban megachurch movement. People like Bill Hybels at Willow Creek or Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Southern California, they created a consumer-friendly Christianity that was designed to respond to this decline by creating a product that the people wanted to buy. The theory being, if we design church to be relevant to now and what people are want, they will come in the door, which they did. Again, that's a positive world strategy because the very term seeker-sensitive assumes people are seeking, that there yes. are a lot of people, that there's a low barrier, that if you just design a nice store, people will want to come in and shop, so to speak. The neutral world saw the engagement development of a strategy called cultural engagement. And again, we've always had cultural engagement people, but cultural engagement really came to the fore in that era. And this was a more urban, upscale type of movement. And the people associated with the neutral world really said, look, this pluralistic public square is not a threat to us. We believe Christianity can be compellingly articulated to this generation in this world. So we should go into the public square and engage people winsomely in order to convince them of the truths of Christianity and draw people in. And again, this was very successful for a time in the places where it was practiced. With the transition to the negative world, however, we have not really seen the emergence of new strategies or models to make sense of or thrive in that world outside of a few niche movements. The only real strategy that's been put forward to it is Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, for those of you who are familiar with that. And evangelicals really did not go for Rod Dreher's Benedict Option. Again, some of that is probably internal to his concept. The very name Benedict, a, a monastic from the Catholic tradition, doesn't really resonate with Protestants. He's not a Protestant. He doesn't know how to speak a language that Protestants or evangelicals would resonate with. Nevertheless, I see their rejection of the Benedict option is essentially rooted in a sense of denial about what's going on in the world. And so as we've entered the negative world, new pressures have been brought to bear on the church and the various groups of, you know, kind of culture war people uh, who you might think sort of gra you know, gravitated around Trump in the 2016 election, the, the suburban megachurches and the urban uh, hip cultural engagement people, those pressures have all sort of operated to push them in certain directions that have brought them into conflict as they've essentially doubled down on their strategies rather than adapting really to the negative world. And I trace some of the internal divisions within evangelicalism to the way that these different strategies and different group of people have interacted with the new pressures of the negative world. Again, how unprecedented this is cannot be overstated, that we're in a place that even you know, a 35-year-old or a 30-year-old can remember when Christianity was viewed differently in America than it is today. You don't have to be an old person to understand this. 
And it is really a difficult challenge to figure out how to adapt to a world in which Christianity is now on the outs. And that is something that a lot of people don't want to accept or understand, but that is essentially the root of many of the things that we see today. Yeah. And I think it's incumbent upon us to be realists, realists in the sense that we're going to take the world as it is, not as we wish it was. Um, But as Christians, that's how we're going to be able to express a faithful Christian witness in the world as it is. And I think you're right. I do sense a a doubling down, almost a a looking back at, at strategies that they recall being fruitful. They recall it being successful. And I believe the mentality is, well, if it succeeded then, all we probably need to do is re-implement now, and it's that's going to work. But I, I sense that the situation, the strategic landscape has shifted under their feet, and there's a, a dissonance there where they don't recognize that. And the, the same tactic isn't necessarily going to produce the same fruit. Real quick, I want you to, to maybe speak to some of that, but could you also, for our listeners who are not familiar with the Benedict Option, would you be able to summarize the, the premise of that play? Well, it's quite uh, complicated. He has a large number, 30-something uh, strategies, I think, in there. But ultimately, the Benedict Option says that Christians should make a partial retreat from the public square and political engagement in order to focus on building and strengthening local communities that will be equipped to resist persecution. Dreer himself uses the metaphor of an ark. He's like, we need to build an ark that can survive on the seas that are going to be coming in the deluge. And so in essence, it represents something of a recalibration of Christianity away from public engagement, more towards strengthening the church and local communities. And that doesn't fully do it justice, but that is the basic premise of us. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say he is not arguing for a complete withdrawal from society, uh, which is something that a lot of people have uh, critiqued him for. You're abandoning the Great Commission in order to go hide. And I think to be to be candid, he invited that reaction by using a monastery as his model. Uh, that's the first thing people think of as a monastery is withdrawal from the world. Nevertheless, political engagement, engagement in the world, et cetera, is still part of what he's arguing for. But he wants to have a more of a rebalancing towards focusing on the local community itself, which actually stated that way, I mean, I would agree with it. Christians in America have, I think, traditionally relied on the culture as essentially a bulwark for reinforcing moral norms, et cetera. There was essentially an integration of Christianity with the culture, whereas minority groups in America, uh, including Catholics originally, but certainly Jews, Muslims, et cetera, today, have always known, hey, this is not a culture that instantiates our religion. Therefore, we have to create institutions and patterns of living and ways of life that pass on our culture and our beliefs to the next generation. Christians have largely not done that in America because the institutions of society sort of did it for them. And that's not to say that you wouldn't send your kids to Sunday school to learn morality and all of that stuff. There was some of it, but the Christian institutions were thinner than those of other faiths simply because they could, because this was, in essence, a Christian society or a society in which Christianity and many of its teachings were held in honor. Now that that's no longer the case, this sort of thin community 
that we've had is probably not going to be adequate. We will return to the podcast momentarily, but first, a word from our sponsor. Being a Christian today can be hard. This is true if you live in a heavily persecuted country like Iran or areas where cultural pressures against Christians are growing fast, like America and Europe. Fortunately, none of us have to stand alone. We are part of a giant body, one huge spiritual family that spans the globe. That is the church. The Christian Emergency Alliance is committed to helping the church stand, regardless of the pressures to come. As a 501c3 nonprofit, the Christian Emergency Alliance strives to help our spiritual family when persecution hits. We also strengthen the church by supporting ministry that makes Christ famous, defends biblical truth, and prepares fellow believers for challenges ahead. You have the opportunity to make a huge impact in this work today. Become a monthly financial ally of the Christian Emergency Alliance by signing up at christianemergency.com. Your support of $25 a month or a gift in any amount will bless those who need help in these darkening days. Help the church stand today, tomorrow, and in the days to come. Register today at www.christianemergency.com. And now, back to the show. I think that there's positive aspects to this this stripping away the veneer of a pro-Christian culture, and that it may not have been as pro-Christian as we believed, and a lot of people may have checked out. They may not have taken their discipleship responsibilities as seriously with their children, presuming that they could send them to this institution or that institution, and it's going to be supportive and affirming. Generally, that worldview, that may not have been the case. More and more people are are savvy to that now, and I think that that's a healthy thing because you, what's going on is they're appreciating the world as it really is more accurately. You used the word denial, that we're in a, a state of denial of sorts, and that evangelicals have not really taken it upon themselves to develop their own ministry strategy uh, for the negative worlds, and that that's really important for us to develop. We may not have all the answers right now, but we should be taking a hard look at uh, other models, at our Bibles, at what is a faithful expression of Christianity in this new era. One of the things that surfaces in my mind, that, that's percolating in my mind, is the fact that it's been a negative world for many of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ uh, around the world for centuries, in some cases for a millennia. And they have you have seen patterns of faithfulness and success there. That's one of the reasons why the Christian Emergency Alliance exists and this podcast exists, is trying to extract, to crystallize, and to implement uh, some of that for audiences that persecution and pressure is new to. We're not adept to it. You're absolutely right. It's unprecedented in the sense that changes have carried out so swiftly in the West that you can't have a young person that can remember a fundamentally different culture when they were young than what they see today. That is unprecedented in how swift it is. But what is with precedent is Christians enduring a somewhat hostile culture where they're a minority and they recognize themselves as a minority. How did they remain faithful? How did they support one another? How did they ensure that they were able to continue teaching biblical truth and all of this? So have you had an opportunity to look much at the experience of Christian persecution around the world and how that might translate into a Western or a secular experience? One thing we can learn from Christians overseas is that the emergence of a hostile regime does not mean the end of your faith in your community necessarily. Now, in some cases, Christianity was exterminated through persecution. Let's be clear. That essentially happened to Japan. 
It happened in China, essentially. But if you look at a place like Egypt, which has been under Muslim rule since you know the 600s or the 700s, something like 10% of the population is still Christian. Until quite recently, there were large Christian and Jewish populations in many of these Middle Eastern countries. The fact that the Coptic Christians were able to sustain their faith through more than a thousand years living under a Muslim society in which the Islamic faith is very much tightly integrated with the secular reign. Muslims don't really recognize that distinction between the secular and the sacred realms, shows that the emergence of a negative world doesn't have to mean game over. And I definitely detect a sense of pessimism in the drears, in a lot of these people who become very gloomy. We're having a going out of business sale, basically, is their, uh, their view of the world. There's a book out there about the last pagan generation, about how as Rome Christianized, the pagan religions essentially died out because there were no new generations inculcated. And the idea is that's going to happen in the United States, that essentially, uh, as generations turn over, Christianity will essentially slowly go extinct. That could happen. It's not guaranteed that the faith will persist in the United States of America, but that's not guaranteed that it won't either. And so remaining, retaining a sense of optimism is very important. Morale is critically important. But however, I do think there's a tremendous difference between what's happening here and what's happening in many of these other countries. In a China, in an India, in a Middle East, Christians often do face persecution, properly so-called. They may end up in prison. They may end up attacked by basically gangs of people who don't like them. They may suffer tremendous legal disabilities in those places. And that's why I argue that we should not use the term persecution to describe what's happening in the United States. It misdiagnoses the way power is applied here. The example that I like to use is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians, he goes through a litany of things that he suffered shipwreck, beaten with rods, stoned, all of these physical and mental persecutions that he experienced. But you know what? No one, despite everything else that ever happened to Paul, no one ever took away his ability to earn a living as a tent maker. That, however, the loss of, an, of your job is something that does present itself as a realistic prospect here in America. Not just if you're a Christian, but anyone who questions any aspect of what we might call the regime ideology. Some people at Cisco said all lives matter on a conference call and were fired. So if you question any aspect of the ideological line in America, you can find yourself exiled from a job. You can also think about the difference between China and the United States. China has an authoritarian state-run system. Yes, there's a free economy in many ways, freedom of movement in many ways. They have social media there. Yet it's very clear that the state exercises censorship, that the state will repress dissent. There's a famous social credit score that, depending on the actions you take, uh, if you are shown to be someone who is not with the system, you could lose your ability to buy train tickets or plane tickets. You could lose social privileges as a result of the actions you've taken say, make a social media post you shouldn't have made. 
for example, or attend a protest. They've also had this mass surveillance system of cameras, et cetera. You come to the United States, we don't have that in the same form. In our system, the government doesn't censor the content. Private companies censor the content. Facebook and Twitter censor your content. We don't have a government-run social credit system, but we, in essence, have a privately-run social credit system in which these companies decide to boost or de-boost your post based on the networks that you're a post, you're a part of, the content that you have, et cetera. We saw, for example, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, as well with all the elite media combined to ban and suppress the story uh, of Hunter Biden's laptop in October 2020 ahead of the election. It was a completely true story. That was his laptop. The contents were created, which has all now been validated. And yet that story was suppressed. In the United States, we have a decentralized public-private partnership model. The United States projects power internally and externally using not necessarily always the power of the state, although sometimes it does through its military, but also through its soft power diplomacy, through its non-governmental organizations, and all of these nominally independent groups that are in fact funded and aligned with the regime, through our media, uh, through our control of the financial system and the way that we can put pressure on banks to drop customers, uh, through the control of the internet, uh, the various things that we have. So we have a decentralized system that pressures people in different ways. And thinking about it in terms of persecution makes it difficult to appreciate the unique aspects of America, where we do have this system in which incentives are essentially created out of the ether. There's nobody sitting there at Central HQ saying, let's make sure Christians can't work. There's just a essentially spontaneously coordinated set of policies among major corporations, media outlets, et cetera, that people who hold certain beliefs can't be employed in those industries. So you can find yourself exiled from employment in a lot of things by doing that. And again, you don't have to do it to everybody to have an impact. There's a famous line from Voltaire, it's good to execute an admiral from time to time in order to encourage the others. And so when you see somebody made an example of, uh, when you see a big public cancellation, that instills fear in people and people self-censor and comply rather than taking on the risk of what's happening. So what we have in America are new sets of pressures applied indirectly, largely through a decentralized public-private partnership approach that is quite different from the overt persecution being faced in other countries. But let's not sell our own situation short either. If you can't get a job and feed your family, that is a tremendous amount of pressure being brought to bear on you, even if an angry mob of villagers is not pelting your house with rocks. Well, and I, I think that's fair that um, we should be perhaps cautious in the language we choose to describe different events if there's, particularly if there's distinctives. I, I would push back gently, though, on this, and maybe it's because I, I see persecution as on a gradient, and I can certainly see mild persecution to, to more severe forms. But I think the reason that I'm not as hesitant to apply the term persecution to some of the patterns that are starting to build in Western contexts is that my conversations with believers overseas in China and in Iran 
they were the ones who actually say, no, don't, don't fall for this. That, that type of pressure is designed to be a persecution type pressure when they were offered. And I've used this example several times on the podcast. So our common listeners are going to be rolling their eyes. But when I would pose the hypothetical to believers in Iran or these countries, uh, if, if you had the classic example of persecution foisted upon you, you had to take a thrashing, you had to lose some teeth, but you were going to get beat. But, but that was the extent of your, the pushback against your faith for being a Christian. Or option two, that you get to pick from, you don't face any of that classic type of persecution, but instead you just lose your ability to provide for your family. What's more punishing? What's more painful? Which would you rather pick? What, what, what option would you rather select? And every single one of them selected the beating. They selected the classic form of persecution, but they recognized how severe it was to, and how devastating, how cascading the effects are from suppressing somebody's ability to provide for them, their family. They're choked out. They can't provide for their local fellowship. It has an incredibly silencing effect. One term that has been used to describe, I think, maybe this gray zone that you and I are discussing is I've heard smart persecution. And that is, it's a type of persecution that's designed to quietly choke out the body of Christ. It doesn't generate any exciting headlines. There is no blood in the street, but all of a sudden you notice that the church is continually suppressed to the point of extinction. China has been very, very adept at implementing smart persecution tactics, using social credit ratings, using the ability to force people out of their workplaces. I just got back from a trip in the Middle East where Christians were subjected to this kind of pressure. Um, they view it very, very seriously. They would tell you and me that it is persecution. Um, Iran has become very sophisticated in this orbit. So I think that's a healthy conversation, though. I do think, I do agree that there are times where people will cry persecution in the West, and you look at the situation being described, and it really, it, it doesn't pass the chuckle test. So I, but I do see that there is a gradient here, and that we have to be sensitive to the fact that we are perhaps frogs in a pot, and that the water is getting hotter. To not describe it as persecution until the, the water boils, um, I'm just a little bit cautious about that as well. The most important thing to understand is not that it's not a form of pressure. You could even use the term persecution. But when people talk about persecution, they have a very New Testament model. What happened to Paul is persecution. What happened to those Christians in Thessalonica is persecution. And the church has a very long record of thriving under that type of direct persecution. And those models today are often effective in some senses but also because of the very nature of the world that we live in, whenever you do something of that nature, it morally delegitimizes the regime that does it. Uh, so today, these forms of indirect pressure uh, are, I think, as you say, you could call it smart persecution, but it's very, very important that people are clear about what is happening and not applying a simplistic model. How did you know, the Christians in country X thrive while they were being persecuted, those lessons may not be applicable in our environment where things are very different and in which, for example, you cannot simply point at a person or an institution and say, this is the source of the problem. If you could 
press a red button and make the Disney Corporation disappear to pick a company that's been in the headlines lately over their disputes in Florida. If you could press a button and just make Disney disappear, it would not do anything to change the situation in America. You know, if you somehow ejected Joe Biden from office and put Donald Trump in there, like many people fantasize about doing, that's not going to change the situation in America. Now, it may have a few pieces of impact on the margin. But when you have this highly decentralized system that's built through spontaneous coordination, it's much more complicated situation. There's no more appealing to Caesar or to the governor to get rid of the persecution. There's not going to be some edict that all of a sudden the persecution's over. It's, it's much more complicated. And however we want to phrase it, it needs to be addressed through an understanding of what it is and not a simplistic application of models that occurred in the past. I agree. And I appreciate the the holistic thinking and analysis that you provide. Um, Rod Dreher, you mentioned Rod Dreher, Douglas Wilson in Idaho. I appreciate thinkers who are trying to look at things holistically. They're trying to integrate what they see in scripture with what they see in the culture and you're right, we do have to be careful of simplistic applications, simplistic solutions, simplistic descriptions, and that's why these conversations are, are very, very helpful. I only have a couple more minutes, and I just wanted to bounce a couple more things off you before we, we wrap up. Previously, you mentioned how sometimes, in almost in a state of denial, evangelical churches, Christian leaders are trying to implement strategies from the previous era from positive world, from neutral world. Right now, there seems to be a growing gap between some of the, what you might describe as elite Christian leaders and other Christians. And it appears to me to be that those elite leaders are still trying to cultivate elite level relationships with others in the culture and that that is not working that that is leading to a greater divide. Is that a pattern that you've seen? And if so, how would you speak to that? There is this division. As I like to say, there's now a culture war within the church, as opposed to a culture war between the church and the world. Some of the neutral world elites, as I call them, the people who had built these relationships with secular institutions like the New York Times or the Atlantic, they're still doing that. And they're actually quite successful at doing that because those institutions understand that those people are advancing the goals of those secular institutions within the Christian environments. So, so long as they continue criticizing other Christians, using the language and rationale of the secular left, they're going to continue being puffed up uh, by those people. We saw it with the David Brooks piece on the people trying to save evangelicalism from itself. Uh, for example, as long as you're saying and doing what the New York Times and the Washington Post want, by and large, the New York Times and Washington Post are still going to like you. And to the extent that you stop doing things that they want, they're probably not going to like you. Uh, but certainly, because these institutions are so powerful, the New York Times in particular, if you have the favor of those organizations, you are going to have tremendous, tremendous power behind you. Uh, even if the vast majority of your followers don't really like what you're saying. We saw a similar thing during the 2016 and 2020 election 
with the never Trump Republicans, the people who said, I will never support Donald Trump. It's a very small number of people, but they all seem to have columns and major publications. There are very, very few Trump supporters with any sort of a platform in the major media uh, outside of Fox News, and sometimes not even there. And so whether it's working or not, you know, depends on your point of view. We live in a challenging environment and negative world. We have many challenges ahead of us. Somewhere there was a statistic that maybe up to 40% of pastors were thinking of walking away from their, their ministry, that they were under assault from all sides, that it's a very challenging environment to be a, a shepherd shepherding a flock. That is a prayer request, a practical takeaway for our audience, that we could be praying for our pastors and encouraging them and recognizing that there might not be a one-size-fits-all uh, way to engage our local cultures. But are there other things that you would bring up in this negative world environment that practical takeaways that Christians can apply in their own lives and in their own local church? Well, that's a very long topic, probably a topic of an entire podcast or three in its own right. And we don't have all the answers today, but I'll just leave you with one thing. The answer to troubled times is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount saying, he who hears my words and does them is like the person who builds his house on a rock. The people who hears the word and doesn't do them is like the person who builds his house on the sand. We need to be people who are actually doing what the Bible says to do, universal obedience, as opposed to a half-hearted, lukewarm faith, is going to be more important when the storm clouds are brewing. Well, I've really appreciated this uh, time we've had together. As I knew it would be, it was a very thoughtful engagement. How can our listeners find out more about you? How can they track your work, and where can they find you? They should go to my newsletter, which is at aaronren.substack.com. It's A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.substack.com. Sign up there. There's lots of free content. Fantastic. All right. Well, Aaron, I hope we have you back in not, not in the distant future. I hope we have you on again soon. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us today for the Christian Emergency Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends about us and ask them to subscribe as well. To learn more about the Christian Emergency Alliance or financially invest in our ministry, visit us at www.christianemergency.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you again for listening and stand strong out there.